You're listening to Let Them Eat Avocado Toast, a podcast dedicated to offering a no gimmicks and ethical approach to building personal wealth and overall adulting with your host, Kristen Atherton, brought to you by Camex LLC. Tag team, back again. Avo toast, now let's begin. Party on, party people, let me hear some noise. Kristen's in the house, jump, jump for joy. Got mimosas over here and a party over there. Wave your hands in the air, shake that derriere. Brunch time's here, let's get busy. Oop, there it is, hit me. Oop, there it is. Oop, there it is. Back again, and I'm sure significantly embarrassed for me and my recreation of the oop, lyrics from the one hit wonders of the 90s tag team. As always, I am Kristen Atherton, your elder millennial big sis, ready to hit you with some knowledge. Now the last two episodes were focused all around the credit game and how to navigate those muddy waters a little more successfully. You have now hopefully started shaking in your boots whenever you approach your credit cards. Just kidding, kind of. Now I'll get into specific loan structures next time so that you can have an even better grasp on why credit cards are so fucked up. But for today, we're going to flip the switch a little bit and we're going to talk about all the different ways to have your money earn money. In other words, how to make your money work for you. So buckle in bees, it is time to work it. I need a glass of water. Boy, oh boy, it's good to know ya. Is it worth it? Let me work it. Put my thing down, flip it, and reverse it. Is your medicine yet? Is your yet? All right, this would be about that time my ex-husband would say, uh, hey, Kristen, maybe you should let Missy Elliott sing that one, okay? Now, I mean, in this particular case, fair enough. It's time to get our money to work, so let's fucking go. Now, we can't talk about how our money makes money without talking about the concept of time value of money. If you're not familiar with the concept, this phrasing may come off a little confusing for you. So let me try to define it. Time value of money, basically, is the way that we calculate what money looks like in the future or in the past compared to today. It may not surprise you to know that things used to cost less before, and they seem to keep getting more expensive. I'm also sure if you've left your house recently, you've heard all about inflation. Well, basically, money is worth less in the future than it is now, and you need to have more of the same dollars in the future than you would need to buy that same thing today. And that's because of inflation, which is just a reduction in the purchasing power of a currency. You may remember from episode one, we talked about the powers that be at the Federal Reserve Bank, or the Fed. These guys set monetary policy for the U.S. dollar. Their goal is to help the economy to grow, but not so fast that it gets out of control. So the Fed currently targets a 2% inflation rate, and the measures that they take will have an effect on whether the economy sees more or less than that. Without derailing the conversation too far into current events, The inflation rate right now is higher than it's been in a long-ass time, and it has people pretty upset, understandably so. Now, there's not really much we can do about the devaluation of your dollars right this second, but please note, this will happen many more times in your lifetime. And frankly, you're going to need to expect it, or at least hedge your bets against it. It may not happen as rapidly as it is currently, but it could. It could even be worse. So not to get all doomsday on you, the whole point of telling you that is that there is something you can do to prepare for the future interest hikes, inflation, devaluation of your dollars, however you want to say it. Inflation rates have been all over the place, but they have a trend. In 1961, they were just over 1% and they rose all the way to 14% by 1980. Now, there was a lot going on in the world at that time and in the U.S., so I know you guys are going to be heartbroken, but we really don't have time to dive too deep into the history there today. I know, I'm sad too. But since 1980, aka in the last 40 years, inflation has danced around on either side of 3%. So that's the number I like to use uh, to estimate year-over-year inflation expectations when I'm doing calculations to like figure out where my money is going to go in the future. 
So some of your companies give you raises each year on the order of this approximate 3%. They're basically keeping you at the same pay, just adjusting for inflation, which is totally fair, but it's not a raise. Now, if your company doesn't give you that inflation adjustment each year, they're essentially paying you less for each year that you sit there without getting a raise or a promotion. Now, I don't want to turn you into a disgruntled worker, but you should definitely know the ins and outs of your pay structure at work, so it's worth keeping in mind. So knowing that inflation is roughly 3%, you need your money growing on the order of at least 3% to just stay the same. Therefore, you need to have your money in accounts that have interest rates. What does that look like? Well, okay, there are two main types. There's accounts you can get from the bank and there are investment accounts. Let's take a look first at bank accounts. I'm imagining you are all familiar with a checking account at this point, but just in case, it's that account that I talked about last episode where your money is the most liquid your checks or debit card would immediately pull out of that account. Traditionally, checking accounts don't have interest rates, but there have been an increasing number of institutions that would offer a reward checking account that does earn some level of interest. There are probably going to be some requirements to get that reward, and each bank or credit union's rules could vary. Money in the bank, show it what y'all drank. Huh. You guys thought you were done with me singing, huh? (laughs) We'll see. Now, the most well-known bank account that actually earns you money is a savings account. I, again, am assuming you guys know what these are and how to open one. They're not that difficult, but I can break them down for you further if you'd like. Just email the show at lte.avo.toast at gmail.com. Basically, savings accounts earn you some level of interest, but I bet if you look at your account, it's nothing near 3%. So by just leaving your money in a savings account, even though the number will technically grow, you're actually losing value. Savings accounts have some rules associated with them, including limits on how many transactions you can make in a given month. Before the pandemic, this was six a month, and it's likely to go back to that as we recover, but They uh, loosened up the rules a little bit during the last couple of years. Savings accounts usually have a small minimum balance. For example, my current savings account requires that I have $5 in there at all times. There may be some reward savings accounts that are out there with higher interest rates, but as with reward checking accounts, they're going to have some stipulations attached to them. Savings accounts are slightly less liquid than checking accounts because of that transaction limit. And the reason for that is this. Banks make money by taking your deposited money and loaning it to somebody else. Remember, when they make loans, they're charging interest on them. So the interest rate that you get in your savings account is your tiny little piece of the pie that they're giving back to you from those loans. Basically, you're loaning the bank your money. They loan it to somebody else for more interest than you're getting from them. By limiting your ability to pull money out, they ensure that they are still capable of covering your savings account's worth while still extending credit to somebody else. The FDIC insures most banks because, as you can imagine, if everyone wanted to pull their money out of the bank all of a sudden, they wouldn't be able to give it all back because they have already loaned it out elsewhere. That's part of the incredible drama in the Great Depression. People rushed to the banks to pull their money out, and the banks ran out of money to give back because they loaned it out. The FDIC insurance ensures that your money is not jeopardized in the case that the bank overextended itself or a bank run like in the Great Depression. So it's a pretty safe, low-risk way to get a tiny bit of growth on your money. But again, it's not even enough to keep up with inflation. If you struggle with cash flow, A savings account is a good place to start saving your money because you still have reasonable access to it if you find yourself in a pinch. Remember, they charge you money if you break their rules, like having more than six transactions in a month. So don't break their rules. I mean, they're already making enough money off of your account by loaning it out to somebody else. So you don't want to have to pay them too. Now, the next type of account we'll talk about are money market accounts. 
money market accounts, sometimes shortened uh, as MMAs, not to be confused with mixed martial arts fighting. They're also sometimes called money market deposit accounts, MMDAs, um, not to be confused with MDMA, although I can see the appeal of mixing the two up. But I like to call them money markets. It's not technically correct. It's not the correct way to refer to them if you're knee-deep in the financial world, but we are not. Money markets, MMAs, MDMAs, <laughs> just kidding, MMDAs, they're a little bit different than savings and checking accounts. A money market is a great option if you're in the process of saving up your money because they offer higher rates of return than a savings account, but they're not intended for longer-term goals like retirement. So while you're building up your six-month savings, like we talked about in episode two, cough, cough, a money market might be a great option. Typically, they require some minimum balance for the duration that the account is in existence, usually higher than a savings account. And as with any other account at the bank, they will charge you a fee if your account drops below that minimum. Money markets will also have limited transactions allowable. It might be even less than savings accounts. It just depends on the institution. Some of them actually allow you to write some checks and even make debit card transactions against that account. Now, my personal opinion on those last two options is to absolutely just ignore them. If you're going to use a money market, it should be operating in your brain as something to put money into, but not to take out of. You also need to double check the terms of the money market account as they compare to a savings, particularly if you have some sort of reward savings account option available. It's possible for a reward savings account interest rate to be higher than the interest rate of a money market account. But traditionally, money markets are the biggest money makers with the most flexibility that a bank or credit union could offer. Now, the last type of account is called a Certificate of Deposit, or CD for short. This will usually be the highest interest rate that you can get from an FDIC-insured bank. Now, remember how banks loan out your money? They give you less interest on your savings account because they still risk that you're going to pull out the money at any time. A CD removes some of that risk to the bank, so they'll give you a higher interest rate. But how does a CD remove the risk? Well, you agree to leave a lump sum in that account for an extended period of time. Common CD terms are three months, six months, 18 months, and also full year increments, one, two, five, hopefully not 10. You should be investing if it's up to 10. CDs are a really solid way to get used to not touching your savings. If you're unsure whether you could agree to keep that money on ice for a year, Maybe try a portion of your savings for a short term. The shorter the term you agree to, the lower the interest rate. Remember, they want your money longer. They'll give you more money for that because it is less of a risk for them that you're going to take it out. Note that it is worth shopping around for the best CD terms and rates. If you're trying to use CDs as an insured, low-risk way to grow your money, you'll want to pay attention to the bigger picture of the economy. Is it likely that the rates will continue to drop? You would want to have a longer-term CD that would lock in the higher rate that you know is happening today. If you think that rates are going to climb quickly, you may not want to lock yourself into something too long-term. You might want to go with something shorter, and then when that term expires, you can get a higher interest rate and roll that CD money into the next one. Now, this is a timing the market strategy. And I don't really particularly subscribe to anything that is expecting you to time the market. I'll get into that when we talk about investments. CDs are going to be the best and most effective tool to help you get used to that reduction in liquidity, particularly if you are a recovering paycheck to paycheckaholic. CDs are also really great ways to teach children if you have them particularly preteens and teens, about different types of accounts, saving money, and learning that not all of their funds should be immediately liquid, as in they shouldn't spend it just because it's burning a hole in their pocket. So today's CDs lock in about 1-2% to interest growth rates, but minimum values will vary, as does the length of the term. 
Now that's better than the less than 1% that you'll get in a savings account. Technically, yes, you can pull money from your CD should you find yourself in an emergency situation, but it will cost you money, as with everything else, to break the terms of that CD. I, again, would suggest that you're willing to sock it away for that period of time before signing up for it. When I say this is great for preteens and teens, I actually did have one of these. My mom helped me get a CD at one point when I was maybe early high school or something. I can't remember. She didn't tell me that you could pull money out of your CD. She basically just said, no, ma'am, you give it away. You don't get it back until the end of that time period. And I would like to tell you, that's a better way to look at it. Because you don't need to pay them to get your money back. You're not getting all of your money back. You're fucking yourself over. Imagine that it's gone. You gave it away. You loaned it out to the bank for that period of time. And they'll pay it back with interest at the end of that loan, basically. You just have to wait for them to pay it back. It's not yours. You can't get it back early. Okay? So don't think about it as something you can pull money back out of. It's set in stone until that time period is up. Now, I just want to make one last comment on the accounts that you can get through your bank and all of this FDIC insurance that I keep talking about. So the FDIC is the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. If you do most of your banking with a credit union, your deposited money is not actually insured by the FDIC. It's insured by the NCUA, which stands for the National Credit Union Administration. Not all banks and credit unions are insured. So if you have your money in an institution that is not insured, and it'll have to be said on their website, for example, the tiny little words down at the very bottom of the home screen, you'll probably want to start shopping for a new bank or credit union. Stat. The other thing you should know is that these institutions do not insure your accounts indefinitely. The combined amount of your bank account cannot exceed $250,000 per institution. So if for some ungodly reason you have more than $250,000 saved in a bank, you need to open a new account at a different bank for the rest of that money to be insured. Keeping no more than $250,000 in one bank at a time. This goes up to $500,000 for joint accounts. So if you and your SO share a bank account, you can stockpile $500K and the FDIC or NCUA will reimburse you if that place goes under. Okay, I got, I got two more things on that note. The first is, and I'm probably going to get hate on this, but I'll explain myself further next season. I would strongly recommend against a joint account with your significant other. Now, I get it. It's fine if you have a joint checking account that you both deposit some percentage of your paycheck into for family expenses like rent or the mortgage, utilities, etc. It's also fine to do that if you're not bringing in the paycheck and your significant other is the sole provider for your household. But if you are the one making the money, or if you're both making money, you may want to rethink that joint account. It has to do with losing control of the money that you worked hard to earn. Again, I'll leave it there as a teaser for next season, but I had to at least throw it out there and plant the seed in your head. And I know that's a little hypocritical, but we'll get to it more next season. Last thing, if you have over $250,000 in a bank, you are missing a lot of opportunities to grow your money. This is where investments come into play. Because, as Robert G. Allen once said, how many millionaires do you know who have become wealthy by investing in savings accounts? Bueller, Bueller, Bueller. I rest my case. I use the term bank interchangeably with credit union because bank and credit unions are similar in the products that they offer to account holders. They're set up a little bit differently. We can explore what that looks like in another episode if you guys would like. It's not really relevant to helping you understand the different types of accounts, so we're not really going to talk about that today. What we are going to talk about is moving into investments. We've pretty much exhausted every type of account that a bank could offer you, and investments are going to be a little bit more exciting. There's two main types of investments. There would be retirement accounts and straight up investing. So for right now, we're gonna get into retirement accounts. 
If you work for a living, and most of us do, particularly in some sort of full-time, non-contract job, you probably have encountered retirement accounts. Accounts you get through your work are the easiest way to invest, especially at first. Now, if you remember in episode two, I told you to put away at least 5% or as much as your company will match you so you could budget after that. Yeah, that's where we are right now. So let me explain myself more. Most of you will get your hands on a 401k at some point or another. So that's where I'm going to start. I'll get more into the history of 401ks as compared to more traditional corporate offerings like pensions in episode eight. But for now, I'll just talk about how they work. First of all, 401k is the section of the Internal Revenue Code that describes and authorizes these types of accounts. And no one in the government or otherwise was clever enough to come up with another name for it, so here we the fuck are. Now don't let the drama of legal document section names get you tripped up. Unless you're a tax lawyer or a corporate lawyer, you don't really need to read any further into the name of these types of accounts. So if you had it, loosen up some of that anxiety, maybe take a drink, let it go, no big deal. There's no special meaning to it other than that. Now, like I've said before, there are tons of stupid names and terms in finance. It's a finance bros world. We just all fucking live in it. The first type of 401k plan to exist is the traditional 401k. It was the only type for nearly 30 years. Now, if you hear me say trad in place of traditional, it's because I'm a newbie rock climber and trad is a type of rock climbing, aka traditional rock climbing. I'm just trying to be cool with the rock climbing crowd. So roll with me on that. Now, these accounts put the onus on the employee to manage and save for her own retirement, whereas companies used to offer pension funds. They would basically pay an employee for life after he or she retired. The traditional 401k plan pulls funds from your gross salary, so before taxes. Again, gross that you don't get to keep it all, right? You would also pay taxes and additional penalties if you chose to pull money out of your 401k in advance. So again, let's just put the hard and fast rule out there of don't fucking touch that money. Your company will usually set themselves up with a specific investment company. Mine to date have been Vanguard and Fidelity, which are pretty big ones for 401k life. So your company and the investment company, they'll set up the options of investments that you are allowed to choose from. So your choices are going to be somewhat limited as to what you can actually put your money into. Those options usually include mutual funds and target date funds. Both types of funds are a mix of stocks and bonds. The target date funds are designed to reduce the risk of investment losses as the employee approaches retirement. A 2050 target plan would be more aggressive than a 2030 target plan because the person retiring in 2030 is retiring eight years from now, where the person retiring in 2050 is retiring 28 years from now. In all fairness, you could keep the money in a cash account within your 401k. I mean, it is the safest after all, but you're doing yourself a really big disservice if you do because you're not earning any interest. In any case, these are the accounts that will be the easiest for you to take advantage of. The other type of 401k is the Roth 401k. The only real difference between the Trad and Roth 401ks is the way that you're taxed on them. Roth 401k contributions, what you pay each paycheck, will not be pulled out of your paycheck before taxes. They'll be pulled out after you pay taxes. The downside to this is that your paycheck is lower and you're paying more taxes. The upside to this is that your withdrawals for retirement will not be taxed. Now, why would you pick Roth versus traditional? If you're expecting your retirement income to be in a lower tax bracket than you're in today, a traditional 401k would be better because you'll pay lower taxes in the future when you pull your money out than you're currently paying. If you're expecting to have a higher income and tax bracket as you get older, then a Roth 401k could help shelter you from those taxes. I'll go more into detail about taxes in episode seven, but for now, your expectation as a young investor should be to get raises throughout your career and therefore be in a higher tax bracket later. 
thus making the Roth option your best friend. Not all employers offer Roth 401ks, so you may not get to pick. The typical advice that's out there is, if you do have the choice, have a healthy mix of both types. This is because no one truly knows what taxes and tax codes will look like by the time they retire, so it's better to hedge your bets. Personally, I have a particular distrust for the government to keep their promises, so I'm a little less trusting of Roth types than other people tend to be. The reason for that is this. If you don't pay taxes today, you know for sure that you're getting a tax break because you already got it. A bird in the hand and all that jazz. All that jazz. So how much can you put into your 401k? For 2022, you can contribute up to $20,500 into a traditional 401k as an individual. This comes out to a little less than $800 per paycheck, assuming you get paid every other week, something like $788 and change. So this limit is probably not feasible for those of you making less than six figures. I'll just be honest. And the reason for that is, if you calculate out $800 per paycheck as 20% of your paycheck, which is, you know, a reasonably good, high almost amount of your paycheck to be saving in a 401k, that comes out to roughly $104,000, right at six figures, right? If you're making less than six figures, that's going to be more than 20% of your gross salary that you're putting away, which means that you'd be living on less than 60% of your gross salary once you paid out your 401k and your taxes. It all goes away so quickly, doesn't it? So if you earn less than six figures and you're the sole provider for your household, even if that household is you and your puppies, don't necessarily push yourself to get up to that maximum contribution limit, but you do need to contribute at least what your company matches or 5% whichever is higher, and no less than that. If you can afford to put away that full amount pre-tax, a word of caution. You will need to understand how your company set up their 401k plan. I'll give you a little anecdote now. My first company, I could contribute beyond the traditional 401k limits. I would keep paying each paycheck through the end of the year. My company would keep matching my contributions and anything that exceeded the IRS limits for a traditional 401k was actually rolled into a Roth 401k automatically, unbeknownst to me. This was fantastic for me, of course, because I got all the benefits. My paycheck was slightly lower toward the end of the year because I would pay more in taxes, but it really didn't do much to my standard of living. It just made being generous at Christmas time a little more of a stretch than it would have been any other time of the year. Kind of sucked, but no big deal, really. Now, I didn't save enough to hit the next limitations that the IRS puts on the 401k. If you are able to contribute to Roth only or both trad and Roth, the amount of money you can put away, including your employer's contributions, your trad contributions, and your Roth contributions, all of that together cannot exceed $61,000. Now, these are numbers for tax year 2020, and they'll change every year. But a quick Google search will tell you what the amount is for the year coming up or for your current tax year. Like I said, some employers don't offer Roth 401k options, so that limit is not going to be feasible for most people just because you're not even going to have the chance for that. So most of you will sit at the $20,500 cap because traditional is all that your employer offers. Now, I never got to get to that total 401k cap. I'm not that wealthy, but if you are making a shit ton each year, it's something that you do need to know about. The biggest issue I ran into was when I started at my second company. So I got used to my 401k contributions rolling into a Roth and continuing to get my company matching. So it didn't really matter if I contributed more than the IRS limits on traditional 401k contributions. In my second company, they were not set up to allow any Roth contributions. When I hit the IRS limits, I no longer had any contribution going into my 401k from my paycheck. That started around like November, December. Basically, those paychecks were higher because I wasn't contributing anything. You may be wondering why that's a problem. 
It's because regardless of the fact that I put in the full amount allowed by the IRS, my company was only matching my contributions on a per paycheck basis. So they're not matching me dollar for dollar total. They're matching me dollar for dollar on a per paycheck basis. So if I am not contributing in November and December, they're matching me with my 0% contribution. So they're not paying me that. For a dollar amount, let's just give it 5% uh, matching and let's pretend I make $2,000 a paycheck. That would be $100 a paycheck that they are not giving me. And if it's all of November and all of December that I'm not contributing and they are not matching, then I'm out 400 bucks by the end of the year that they should have paid me. Now, I know that's small in this grand scheme of things, but at the same time, that's $400 that they didn't pay me. In that sense, if you are in the position to exceed those IRS limitations for traditional contributions, you're going to need to know how your plan is set up. If you don't have the Roth rollover option, you will have to limit your 401k contributions to that max level divided out by a paycheck. So again, that's just under $800 for a biweekly paycheck in 2022. Some of you will not have access to 401ks because you don't work for a private or publicly traded for-profit company. If you work for the government or for a nonprofit, government can also include things like public school systems, you're going to have a similar plan, but they call it a 403B. Again, the name here is just the section that it's in in the tax codes. Super lame, super unoriginal law. Now, the contribution limits are the same as a traditional 401k, but there are a few differences between the offerings you can have access to for a 401k and the offerings you have access to with a 403b. Most notably, 403b employers do not offer matching. It's an employer tax thing. It keeps them in a certain tax category. So without matching, you don't have that same lower limit that gives you guidance on what your minimum contribution should be. As I said in episode two, target a 5% minimum contribution. As I also said in episode two, I personally don't think that's high enough, but if you're not used to paying anything, start there, work your way up. The other big difference is that most 403B offerings are actually set up by insurance companies rather than mutual fund companies. And they tend to offer annuities rather than mutual funds for growth of your contributions. Now, annuities can be a little bit safer, at least on paper, because they're a product from an insurance company and they're set up to make a set payment toward retirement in the future. This, of course, is compared to the stocks and bond contributions that mutual funds offer. It's likely that 403B annuities will offer a reduced opportunity for growing your money, but they'll be less risky than the market-exposed options of their 401k cousins. If you're starting at your minimum threshold for contributions, or even if you're not, make a point to increase your contribution by 1% each year until you reach that IRS maximum contribution limit. Some companies make that really easy to do, So they'll have you pre-elect to have that increase without having to remember year after year. So do yourself that favor if you can. Now, companies put these retirement accounts in place to replace pension funds. So what used to be a burden on the company is now your burden to manage. As I mentioned, These 401ks and 403bs have limitations on them from the IRS. There are other accounts that allow you to save toward retirement independent of your company. These are called Individual Retirement Accounts, or IRAs. And no, not the Irish Republican Army. We're not fighting for our independence from Great Britain. We we did that about 300 years ago. So IRAs are set up through an investment company. To contribute to an IRA, you have to use your after-tax dollars. But depending on whether you go with the traditional or Roth IRA, 
you may or may not be able to take deductions on your taxes. An IRA allows you to invest your money, so long-term investments are expected to have gains greater than any FDIC-insured financial products. And I'll explain that in a little bit here. So a traditional IRA is similar to a traditional 401k in the tax implications. Yes, you do have to put your after-tax dollars because it's not connected to your paycheck, but you can then claim that contribution on your taxes to get a tax deduction. Growth on your contributions to your IRA will be tax deferred, so you won't pay capital gains taxes until you pull your money out during retirement. A Roth IRA is similar to a Roth 401k in that you pay taxes on the money today, but you won't pay taxes when you pull it out at retirement. And the, the real kicker here, and this is why people really want these, is because you also don't pay taxes on the capital gains that you make. Unlike a Roth 401k, there's actually a, an income limitation to being allowed to contribute to a Roth IRA. If you make over $144,000 as a single person or a combined $214,000 as a married couple filing your taxes jointly, you no longer have the opportunity to participate in making new contributions to a Roth IRA. Any Roth IRA contributions made before that limit are still kept in a Roth IRA account. The next thing you need to know is if you lose your job or you leave your job, you can move your 401k or 403b contributions from your previous employer's accounts to an IRA account. This is called rolling your funds over. There are no tax implications associated with a rollover so long as you go from one retirement account, your 401k, 403b, to another your IRA. All of your funds will roll over into a traditional IRA unless you had any funds in a Roth 401k. Those funds would go into a Roth IRA. There's also a little known trick known as a backdoor Roth and get your head out of the gutter. It's not butt stuff. It is not a separate type of Roth IRA. Instead, it is a little tricky thing that people who make too much money to be able to contribute to a Roth can actually do. So you would transfer funds each year into a traditional IRA, and then you transfer from the traditional IRA to a Roth IRA. It requires the help of a financial institution that offers both trad and Roth IRAs to clients. It is not a way to dodge taxes. Taxes are due at the time of the rollover, but it is a way to maneuver around the income limitations legally. So this is one of those that dances on the edge of ethics, but it's technically legal and it does not dodge taxes. So if you're in a position where this might benefit you, I still feel somewhat comfortable telling you to go for it. And full disclosure, I've done it a couple times. Now, just like your 401ks and your 403b, both types of IRAs have contribution limits. This limit is much lower than the employer retirement accounts at just $6,000 per year. And that's for 2022. Let's assume that you can save the absolute maximum allowed contributions by the IRS in your 401k and your IRA from the time you turn 22, which I'm assuming is a right around when everybody got out of college, um, until you retire at 65. Now, if you can do that, you'll be able to live a quite comfortable retirement, somewhere on the order of $135,000 per year in today's dollars, with a very conservative estimation. So it could be even better. But let's be real. Most 22-year-olds aren't saving for retirement at all, much less making enough money to contribute $26,500 of their annual salary towards retirement accounts. So with that said, 
My opinion is that these limitations are unfairly low, considering that as people get older and more established in their career, they are making more money, they're in a better position to, and they're actually more willing to save into retirement accounts. And they'll have to make up for some of that lost time from their earlier years. Since the government is putting these restrictions in place, you are going to have to take matters into your own hands, which will be much more capable than you might think at the moment. To do so, you're going to want to start by looking into a standard brokerage account. A standard brokerage account is your ticket into personal investing. You can buy stocks, bonds, mutual funds, and ETFs, which stands for exchange traded funds. If you take money out of your brokerage account, you will either have to pay taxes if you made money, or you will be able to claim a loss on your taxes if you lost money in the market. Now, these accounts usually involve working with a liaison for the brokerage firm that you have your account through, sometimes called CFAs for certified financial advisors. But another colloquialism for this person and the firm he represents is broker. Now, I read a book when I first started out called Investing from Scratch by James Lowell. He had one particular phrase that has stuck with me for a very long time. Brokers make you broker. You can see why it stuck with me. Pretty catchy. His point was not to trust a middleman to make your money work for you. And I think he was particularly talking about these brokerage accounts, but I at the time took him to mean that with regard to my 401k because I think they do have financial advisors that you can call up and have help you with your 401k contributions and how to manage your portfolio. Under that assumption, I just managed my own investments in my 401k for the longest time. If you want more information as you start to dip your toe in the water of investing, I would suggest starting there. Now, some of you have 3D printed your own people by now, so you'll likely have some goals that center around those little mini-me's as well. For the kiddos, you can set up three different types of investment accounts. You have the option for a custodial brokerage account, education accounts, and a retirement account. Yes, really. A custodial brokerage account is basically a standard brokerage account that you run on your child's behalf. So not really a whole lot to say there. You can set it up. You're in charge of it until they turn like 18 or 21. And then you, you know, turn it over to them and it's no longer custodial. It's now just a standard brokerage account. The next type I said was education. And this could go on forever. I mean, literally forever. There's so much to say about education accounts. Now, these education investment accounts would be the accounts that you pay into to help you save toward your kids going to college or even private grade schools. There's a few different types of these accounts that are out there. The most well-known account is the 529. And again, this is just a section of a tax code. That's why it's called 529, but they're really bad with these names. There's a ton to say about 529s and the other education accounts. There's actually two different types of 529, but for now, I'll just let you know that they exist and they can be a really good way to start saving for your child's tuition, even for elementary and secondary school, but most notably for college. And in the case of 529s, they also offer some tax benefits to you as the saver. So read the fine print and perhaps a few seasons from now, we can dive deeper into the details here. If you wanna get this info sooner, feel free to email the show. The last one I mentioned, and I'm sure it blew your mind, is you can actually start a retirement account for your underage children. It's called a custodial IRA, and these are only available if your child has started to earn money. Now, let's say your 15-year-old gets a job as a lifeguard this summer, and she makes $4,000. You can put the entirety of that $4,000 into a custodial Roth IRA for her. And when she turns a certain age, usually somewhere around 18 or 21, you would then switch that account over to be in her name, which will continue on as the adult version of a Roth IRA. You can deposit whatever your child makes in a year into the custodial Roth IRA, up to the same limits as adult IRAs, $6,000 as of 2022. Now, of course, the real kicker here is convincing your kid to put their money toward a retirement account this early in the game. But that one, my friend, will be on you. 
Now, I also saw something on TikTok the other day. With those custodial IRAs and the fact that your kids have to be making money in order to open one of those accounts in the first place, you could actually set yourself up with a family business, whatever it may be, and then you employ your child. You could start employing your child from the moment they get a social security number, and you can pay them an annual salary for doing something as simple as modeling in your advertisements. And then you can contribute six grand to your child's custodial Roth IRA from the day that you have their social security number. So just a thought. I would definitely look into it more. And if you guys want to learn about opening businesses for yourselves, we'll talk about that another season. Now, investing does carry an inherent risk. And the types of investments that you make could yield higher or lower returns based on how exposed you are to the market. There are absolutely no guarantees with investments. But the key here is that the risk and reward go hand in hand. Low risk usually doesn't offer but a little reward. High risk can offer quite high rewards, but that's only can. That doesn't mean it will. There are many strategies to investing, but before we get into those strategies, let's talk a little bit about the markets first. The stock market is filled with individuals who know the price of everything, but the value of nothing. Philip Fisher. Now, there are a ton of people out there who will tell you with great confidence that what they have to say about the markets is correct, and that somehow they are smarter than everybody else. Just so you're not taken for a fool, let's get into some of the main things you might hear about the market. The main thing you need to know is that there are four main phases that a market will go through. The accumulation phase, the markup phase, the distribution phase, and the markdown phase. Accumulation starts when the market is at its lowest point, and some people begin to start buying into it again, anticipating that the worst is over. But those are some really early movers. Basically, the market's on sale, and some people are there to make purchases. But often, you'll hear the media and everybody else talking about how this is the worst thing in the world. It's all doom and gloom. Chicken little, the sky is falling. When the market starts to stabilize, more people will start to buy in it. This, this is the markup phase. When demand grows, prices go higher. So they begin to be marked up, right? And they're no longer being offered at a steep discount. We've seen this in retail. We all love to go shopping, kind of. I kind of hate shopping. But in any case, you've seen when things start to raise in prices and you're kind of like, man, they really marked that one up, didn't they? That's all we're talking about here. Same product, higher cost. The markup phase is also called a bull market. As in, it like charges the markets forward, pushes the markets to the top, and it's usually characterized by high levels of greed. People are trying to buy lower, sell high, make tons of money in this phase. The distribution phase is when sellers begin to dominate the market. They're starting to get worried. It's often when markets get quite emotional. There's lots of movement or volatility in market speak. Moods will begin to come off that bullish high and they'll start to neutralize and then fear will start to set in. That will push it into the markdown phase of the market and that's when things start to really fall and prices plummet. This usually incites a selling panic in those who still have positions left. Now, once the markets drop in value by 20% or more, this is considered a bear market. I'm not entirely sure why they call it a bear market. I didn't find it in my research, but I imagine it's because, you know, bears like to hibernate in the winter and in the winter, temperatures drop. In a bear market, prices are dropping. So it looks like basically Game of Thrones winter is coming. And so those in the market are trying to go into hibernation. Honestly, fuck if I know, but it sounds good to me. So we're going to roll with it. Longer-term economic cycles look similar to the market cycles, but they're longer-lasting, and they're often what we hear about most from the media. You know, recessions, depression, always the negative parts of it, too. Peter Lynch said, you get recessions, you have stock market declines. If you don't understand that that's going to happen, then you're not ready, you won't do well in the market. These cycles, both the short-term market fluctuations and the long-term economic cycles, are what make investing so risky. 
The ultimate goal, kind of mentioned it earlier, is to buy low and sell high. Most everyone is shitty at this, so don't really believe anyone who says they're great at it. Make them show you the receipts. And I don't mean like last month. I mean years, decades even. Here's the deal though. The long-term growth in the market on average is 10% year over year. Long-term. This should be compared to the average inflation rate of 2.5% per year. Even the projected inflation rate for this year, which is high at 3.8%, according to Charles Schwab. But even with that kind of inflation, you're still making money. You're still winning out. 10% is greater than 4%, right? So you're still getting an extra 6% on top of the inflation rate. Now, this is the kind of hot girl summer hashtag gains that we should be looking to have. Am I right? So we know that even though there's a risk that each year will behave contrary to the average, there is some level of average historical reward to be had from investing going back nearly a century. So how do we invest effectively to capitalize on these hashtag gains? A few quotes from those who know the best. I will tell you how to become rich. Close the doors. Be fearful when others are greedy. Be greedy when others are fearful. Warren Buffett. The individual investor should act consistently as an investor and not a speculator. Ben Graham. Investing should be more like watching paint dry or watching grass grow. If you want excitement, take 800 bucks and go to Las Vegas. Paul Samuelson. I know you guys have been holding on to your seats for this one. This is the part where I get to tell you why women are better investors than men, statistically speaking. Women tend to approach investing from the long-term perspectives described by those experts that I just quoted. Women tend to put money in the market, not look at it, go about their business, come back and find that it's grown. They plant the seeds, water the soil, let the sun do its magic, and then they come back and they get to enjoy the flowers and the money trees that they planted a few years back. Men, again statistically, don't come at me with that not all men bullshit. I don't care. Men tend to be gamblers in the stock market. They want to play the short game. They want to try to buy low and sell high. They want to get a quick fix. They want to make money fast and they want to make lots of it. They generally listen to everyone else around them, surprisingly, a bunch of other men. They get all emotionally charged, amped up, just pumped up with testosterone, and they wind up making decisions on when to sell or buy that paradoxically causes them to buy high and sell low. The short game exposes you to the volatility of the market and economic cycles. The long game evens the playing field out. Basically, it squeezes out all the drama and gives you less BS. So your biggest and best investment strategy is to be in it for the long haul. I'd also like to point out that this shows us with statistics that men are more dramatic than women, at least when it comes to investing. Wide diversification is only required when investors do not understand what they are doing. Warren Buffett. Now, it's early in your investing game, so don't be offended by Warren Buffett's quote. I don't know if you were. I kind of was. Whatever. Warren Buffett is 91 years old, and he first started investing at the age of 11. So he literally has 80 years of investment experience. Here's the best part. He bought his first stock in 1942, so he timed the market incredibly. For those who don't remember, 1942 was in the recovery phase from the Great Depression, right as World War II really started driving up the U.S. economy. So he got in pretty low, and he got to capitalize on the market's recovery. He has also lived in the same house that he purchased in Omaha, Nebraska in 1958, 64 years ago which he purchased for $35,000. It's safe to say his house is fully paid off at this point. And I'm guessing because it's Nebraska, his property taxes are probably pretty low. His company, Berkshire Hathaway, owns 60 other companies. So in that sense, he didn't just buy stocks in companies. He bought the whole fucking company. That's not too diversified. 
But like I said, he timed the market well. He started early. And now, with a net worth of $106.7 billion, he can afford some risks, even if they tank. It's not likely that they will, though, because Warren is considered one of the most successful investors of all time. He does his research, and he doesn't buy out a company unless he thinks he's going to capitalize on it. He's going to get a return on that investment. Now, diversifying your investment portfolio is a majorly important strategy. Some people, like Warren, would tell you that over-diversification can limit your ability to obtain returns. It absolutely can. Because, again, risk begets reward. But while you're still green, diversify the shit out of your portfolio. What does diversification mean? Well, mutual funds, like I mentioned earlier, are diversified already by the fact that they're all packaged into a fund rather than just picking one company's stock. Mutual funds are a really good place to start. You can actually get mutual funds of varying kinds. You can get Small cap, mid cap, large cap, which means tall, grande, venti, or, you know, just small, medium, and large size publicly traded companies. You can also find mutual funds for international stocks, mutual funds for domestic stocks. You can find mutual funds that include more bonds. And in your 401k, you can find those target date funds that we talked about earlier, which manage how aggressive your fund is based on how far away retirement is. Stocks and bonds is usually the way that you consider to be diversified. And again, I would refer you girls to the Investing from Scratch book if you're really ready to dive in. If retirement is several decades away, you can have a higher stock-to-bond ratio. That's considered aggressive. The more individual stocks you have, as opposed to mutual funds, the more aggressive you are. Mutual funds and diverse portfolios are less aggressive. The more bonds you have make you even more conservative. As you get closer to retirement, you want to have a less aggressive portfolio because you will want to have your funds more sheltered. That way, your money will be there for you, even in the case of an economic downturn in the short term. There are a ton of ways to get your money to work for you. The question is, what is the right way for you to do it? In the end, Only you will know that. But the reality is that having money in the bank will not keep up with inflation, reducing the value of your money over time. Because of that, investments in some form need to be an important part of your financial portfolio. Retirement may seem far away, but based on the way interest compounds on itself, saving today will earn you much more than if you waited to save the same amount 10 years from now. You will either have more money to live once you reach retirement, or you may be able to retire earlier if you start investing for retirement today than if you wait. Now, you may think you can't afford to save your money, but the reality is you cannot afford not to. What's more, if you can't afford it, saving for your child's education and future retirement can set your children up to be well ahead of the game. I wanted to give you girls a positive episode this week talking all about how to gain more money without having to earn more at your job or, you know, getting another job. We've had such negative topics lately with budgeting and credit card drama, and I'm afraid that I have to do something a little more on the negative side again next episode. Negative, literally, in that we will be talking about loan structures. Remember, because loans are mathematically negative, on your net worth calculations. Okay, uh, I guess I'll stop explaining my terrible dad joke. Now, why would you want to know about how loans are structured? I think it'll give you an even better look at how credit cards are so detrimental, but it'll also give you some knowledge to work with if slash when you go take out another loan in the future so you don't trap yourself into something that's unpredictable and unmanageable. Some loans are actually not terrible things to have, So we'll talk about the different types that are out there as well. Now, I know this episode was a whirlwind of information. So take another drink, give yourself a chance to process it all. A deeper dive into investments is due, but it will likely make up an entire season in the future. So stay tuned. So for now, as always, and until next time, may your mimosas and bank accounts always be bottomless. Cheers. This has been Let Them Eat Avocado Toast 
brought to you by Camex LLC. Any questions, concerns, comments, or requests for consultations should be directed to our email at lte.avo.toast at gmail.com. All sources used for this podcast are available upon request. All opinions expressed in this podcast are the express opinions of the host and do not represent the opinions of Campex LLC. You should not treat any opinion expressed as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of the host's opinion. All music used is stock music from GarageBand by Apple. Kristen Atherton and Camex LLC remind you to please drink responsibly.